task of having three books to deal with that only have, let's see, 150, 192, uh, 200 and some odd verses, 220 some odd verses I have, or rather 220 some odd chapters I have to cover. And uh, we can do some of that, but unfortunately, we're going to have to just give you some basic, broad, generalized information about it. We start off with the book of Job, and the book of Job is, uh, personally, uh, I do actually have favorites in the Bible, and the book of Job is my favorite in the Old Testament. And that, among other reasons, is because it is the first book of the Bible written, and it does something very important. The book of Job has some very important features. By the way, it is the only time recorded in Scripture where you see God and Satan face-to-face talking. Did you realize that? In Job 1 and in Job 2, it is the only time in the recorded Word of God that you see God on the throne. Now, you do have Jesus talking, and, and, and uh, there's a little bit that goes on in Matthew 4 and, and Luke 4 in the temptation. There's a tiny bit, but if you want to get down to the real talk between Satan and see how Satan acts toward God, you read Job 1 and 2, and you know what you'll come up with? The most biting, nasty sarcasm and disrespect. Well, just for a moment, we'll turn to Job chapter 1. There's something here. I caught it, and I was wondering why no one else did. And finally, I was kind of glad. Every once in a while, I kind of like it when somebody that's a quote-unquote scholar agrees with what I've said. And occasionally, I I say things, and I find out somebody else has already said them. And they're a scholar, so that makes me feel like maybe I'm a scholar. (laughs) I don't worry about that sort of thing. I'm a Bible teacher. But if you look at what God what said... uh, when Satan, beginning verse 9, Satan is answering God, and he says, does Job fear you for nothing? And he says this in verse 11, and this really shows you his attitude. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. That is not the word for curse. That word is translated bless almost every time it occurs in the Old Testament. It is used one other time in this same sense in Kings, where it talks of where it's about Naboth, where he blessed the king, and it was sarcasm. Actually, one of the major one of the major Old Testament books, the best Old Testament uh, commentary, or not commentary, concordance that I know, actually mentioned what I believe, and I was kind of glad to see that these people actually caught it too. It's they, they in essence, in our language, they more more verby, uh, more wordy, because it was written over a hundred and some odd years ago. But what they said is that this is sarcasm. So what you really have here is Satan saying. Put forth your hand now and touch all that, and he will bless you to your face. Now, you cannot say that without seething contempt. Try saying that. He will bless you to your face. You can't do it. You can't do it. Now, that that terminology has been used today. I remember one time, many years ago, when we were over at some friend's house, and we had small children about the same age they did, and they put one of their children to bed. And, of course, he thanked him profusely. He's back there howling his head off. And my wife said, Oh, he's blessing you for that. And that's, the, and that's the ironic or sarcastic use. Now, you have this being, if you read what he says, that one statement alone will show you that his contempt, face-to-face with God, he shows open contempt and disrespect. Now, you, if you didn't have Job 1 and 2, you wouldn't know that. You might think that he would come up and be a simpering kind of backstabbing. I would have thought he would be the simpering, smiling guy, yeah, 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 with a knife in his hand. No pretense. No pretense. Satan is not subtle when he deals with God. 
And that's important to know. And Job, without Job 1 and 2, you would not know because you don't have any place else where you have a face-to-face confrontation with, with God and with Satan. Now, so the, Job is important, among other things, because it establishes very firmly that the Scriptures are to be understood as being written from God's point of view. Now, you might say, well, well that should be obvious. No, it's not really obvious to most people. Because what God says when he starts off in this book, he simply says, this is the character of Job. He doesn't show any evidence of it. He doesn't go through to try to prove it. He just says, this is the way it is. It's just like what you see in Genesis 1.1. I like the commentary that says the Bible begins with, and they, they assume Genesis is the first book, but they say the Bible begins with a fact of creation and not, not to, with a statement and, and no evidence. It, it doesn't make apologies. It doesn't beat around the bush. It just states it. This is the way it is. It, it begins with the Bible, no excuses, no explanations. It just says God created. And the same thing in Job. You see it, and Job was written probably, I'm going to say, around eight, seven, 800 years before Moses wrote. Because this man predates, and we'll talk more about that in a second, I believe this man predates Abraham by a good 200 years. So he's way back. And he lived perhaps as much as within about 135 years of the flood, which, interestingly enough, opens up a possibility. Did you know how long Noah lived after the flood? Anybody know? 350 years beyond the flood. You find it back in Genesis, about the ninth chapter. He lived 350 years beyond the flood. There was no written scripture. The truth of God was spread mouth to mouth. Who do you suppose spread a lot of the truth? Because it does say that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I don't think he stopped being a preacher of righteousness when he got on the ark. So afterwards, he was a preacher. Now, it is entirely possible, if I am correct in my placement of Job, he could have been alive during the time Noah was still here. And he could have heard from Noah because he was in the right end of the world, the right general area. It's pretty easy to believe he was taught by him because he said he does, he's going to say toward the end of the book that he never saw God face to face, but he, he knew of him. Now, he had to hear that from somebody. Someone had to tell him that knew something. And the most prominent person we know after the flood would have been Noah. So there's an interesting thought. I can't prove it. Now, so Job's character is described in Job 1.1. Let's take a quick look at that. And I want to say something. There's kind of a, a pet peeve, and I, I try not to bring pet peeves with me or hobby horses because... We, once you saddle a hobby horse and start to ride, you don't ever want to get off of it, it seems. And so <laughs> I don't want to get saddle sores, and I don't want to give you, uh, uh, bore you people to tears. But you look in Job 1.1, and you'll notice that, that this is just a statement. God says this, and there's no question about it. So it's from God's point of view. He's not making any excuses or apologies. He just says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was, now it ha- first it describes his character. It says he was perfect and upright, and then it describes... His, it doesn't say this, but you can see it's describing his, the way he lived. One that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, it's not chewed evil. I always, just, we, my wife and I joke about it. He says he chews evil. So we'll say, well, you chewing evil today or what? You know, no, it, it just means shun. It's, it's old English. Now, so his character was perfect and upright. Now, the word for perfect there in the Old Testament, please, that word is, just means complete it doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't mean spiritually mature. It doesn't mean they were like a Christian or know what we know. It meant for his time, he was what he could be. He was all that he could be for his time. 
That's the best you can say. And the word for upright is a fascinating word because it really has the idea more like transparent. And you see that with David. When David was commended for being upright, and you look at what David said in the Psalms, David spoke to God without any pretense. He was crystal clear, open, transparent. And when you go through the book of Job, you're going to find when Job, he at different times, and I wish I could go, I love this book, I wish I could teach some of it and go through it in some detail, because you're going to find there's times when Job's speaking, and all of a sudden he turns from speaking to his friends to talking to God. Just, and you can tell by the, what, by, the, by the change in the text of what he says, he's directing it towards God. And he's completely transparent. He doesn't play any games. You know, that's uh, one of the funny things about Christians is that, uh, I think sometimes Christians think they can fool God. You know, somebody wants money for the wrong reason and then they pray and make it sound like there's something spiritual about it. Lord, you know, it would help. It'd be a blessing to my family and everything. No, buying a powerboat's not going to be a blessing to your family. But you've got to ask God the right way, you know. So I've, I've known believers to do this. I would, uh, I would confess if I wanted to be honest. I've done that when I was a young Christian and didn't know any better. <laughs> Maybe some of you have too. I don't know, but I know I did. So, his, his character, he's one that he's perfect. He's all that he could be, and he's transparent. He doesn't play games with God. Interesting way to put it. I mean, that shows you what pastor's talking about. This is what they said. Does this sound like a New Testament grace believer? Well, now the mature part sounds pretty good. But then all you add alongside that is just that he's transparent. He's open before God. I don't see that as New Testament. I don't see that as a mark of a grace believer. And I don't see anything about grace back here in this man's life. I, I just don't see it. So this man, this, he was all that he could be. Now, he says he avoided evil. And so that indicates he had some knowledge of things. But one that really gets me, it says he feared God. Now, now folks, here's my hobby horse. And please forgive me if I get on it and get a couple bucks to it. But I can show you nine times in Scripture where the word fear is used with the word trust. Now, why do I say that? Because people have talked about reverential trust in the Old Testament. It does not exist. It, it doesn't. Because I can show you, I have nine verses where the same word for fear is used along with the word for trust. So if you use fear and trust together, it's obvious that the two don't mean the same thing or you wouldn't use them both. If, it was, if fear meant reverential trust, there are verses where you wouldn't have to use it. Now, is anybody, would anybody like them? I can give you nine verses if you want to see them and not take my word for it. After, either that or afterwards, I can, I can give them to you. But there's nine verses. Most of them are in the Psalms. But you'll also find one in Isaiah. And fear and trust is used together, which means fear doesn't involve trust. So there is no such thing as reverential trust involved in fear. It doesn't exist in the Old Testament. I know, I'll bet there probably isn't five pastors in the country that would agree with me on that, unless they've studied a little bit of Hebrew and looked at the language. Because I could give you, if, if you want the numbers, if anybody, does anybody need the numbers? Would, would you like the numbers for uh, Esword to look it up? You can see the two used together. If you put in both of the numbers for the two words, you can put in the first number and the second number and ask for all of those words, and it'll give you all the places those two words are used. And you'll come up with the verses that I have on paper. And you'll see that fear and trust are used together. Therefore, there is no such thing as reverential trust. What am I saying? That, am I saying that Job feared God? Yes, he feared God. Now remember, what is fear? The word that you have here for fear, and looking it up, and I've dealt with this word, I've chased it through the Old Testament. It, it's the idea of a sort of a sense of apprehension where you, you think that you have this feeling something might happen. It might happen. Something might happen. 
and you don't know what it is, so you're apprehensive. Now, when this man approaches God, he doesn't have the Bible. He doesn't know everything that the Psalms say about the character of God and his loving kindness. He doesn't know how God can be gracious. He doesn't have the New Testament. What he knows is he's dealing with a being that is all-powerful. He does understand some things about God, but he doesn't see the grace, the mercy, and the kindness. It wasn't yet revealed. So was he afraid of God? Yes, he was. He was. Now, it's not like, ooh, it's just... Whenever, well, it would be the same thing, I guess, that when 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 uh, the time pastor got pulled over for the, the the cop that thought he was gonna that he was thinking about going over the speed limit, the cop walks up to the window. Now, you do have a sense of fear a lot of times when that happens. You have a sense of apprehension because he's walking up to the window. You haven't done anything wrong, but there's something you think something's going to go wrong here. There must be. He stopped for some reason, so there's this apprehension. You think something might bad might happen, even though you know you didn't do wrong. So there, that's the kind of fear Job had. He had that kind of fear. Now, please remember, if we're correct, if he lived as close as he did to the flood, then he knew that if God's wrath was kindled, he could do some pretty dramatic things if he lived that close to the flood. And I think that he did. Now, why do we, where do we put Job in history? Well, in, in the handout, there's a lot of information in there of, of calculations that I made. And uh, I'm going to take a quick look at them. Back in, in, in 8, in, in the, uh, I have a section of setting, in, in, in addendum number 8, I call setting Job's place in Bible chronology. Now, we find Job, I believe, according to what I've, have, I've written in these notes here, I believe we find him in Genesis chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. And the reason I'm so sure of it is for, is for two reasons. One is there's a person, the 13th son of somebody, is called Jobab. Now, we have people today that have the name Robert and goes by Rob or Bob, Donald. The only time I heard Donald when I was a kid is when I heard Donald, I was in trouble. So I, I like Don. To this day, I like Don because if I hear Donald, it's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble, which happened a few times in my life, I will admit. So, but the other reason is, is that when you're chasing through Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 repeats the genealogies in some greater detail, you find that it's the genealogy that follows from Shem all the way down to Abraham. And anybody that's not in the line of Abraham isn't there except for one man, one man, a gentleman named Peleg. And you can find it in Genesis 10. And Peleg, one generation of Peleg is detailed. Now, he's not in the line of Abraham, so he's not essential to the story. He doesn't have to be there. Well, why is he there? He has 13 sons. The last one is named Jobab, and nothing more is said about it. Now, why would that be there? Is that just there because God said, well, let me put this in. I'll just put this in to see if people are paying attention to this. No, it's there because I believe it gives you the basis for understanding this man Job. Now, there's a lot that we could say about the evidence. There's, no, there's nothing about the law in his book. He doesn't understand the priesthood. He is a family priest, which goes back before the law. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to say he doesn't. He doesn't mention Israel or Jews or anything. He doesn't know anything about them. So there's no doubt in my mind that this man predates the law by a long, long, long bit and so if you look at what I have back here, in my estimation of it, on, on uh, addendum number 8, down to point number H, our estimate. Now, this is my guesstimation based upon some assumptions I made, so it's not 
foolproof. I could be as wrong as rain, but I think personally I believe that this is reasonable and is probably pretty close to right. So our estimate is that Job was about 216 years old when Abraham was born. And now our estimation also is, judging by his parents immediately before him, both his, his father and his uncle lived to be 240, that I believe this man lived to be 240, which means possibly he lived till Abraham was about 34 years of age which would have nothing to do, so there would be no interface. He might have known Abraham, but it was before God began to deal with Abraham. So it would, he would, but he's close to that time. Now, uh, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of information in here that you can go through, and you see I'm estimating about the ages of how kids were born. But I do believe when you go through and look at, at uh, this, it makes perfect sense, and it will put Job by my calculations, and I, re- I looked at him again yesterday, and it's between 135 to 200 years after the flood. So that is going to affect why his friends are so insistent on when you get what the wicked get hit here and now, here and now, here and now. Why? Because they've grown up hearing about the flood. Within 200 years of the flood, I think they probably still talked about this all the time. And it was a, it was a reminder to, par- to parents that were believers in Jehovah God that look what happens. God gives it to them. They punish them and they get it in the here and now because they look back to the flood. And they assume that God still works that way. Now, that's not a surprising thing for people to drag, hold on to ideas. Look at what the church did not hanging on to the law. They're still hanging on to the law for us today. And God's done with it. So it's not a surprise. So keep that in mind. That, that does help you to understand Job and some of the insistence of his friends. Now, what is the book of Job about? Some say it's about human suffering. I think every commentary I've ever seen says it's about human suffering. It's not about human suffering. It's not. And I can, I, before we show you why we say that, we can show you why it can't be about human suffering. The simplest reason to see is, let's go to Job chapter 38. Now, if this was about human suffering, and if God permitted human suffering, and that was the whole story, do you think that God would not, don't you believe that God would have told Job at some point why he suffered? If, it was about, if that's all it was about, it was about human suffering, and his need to trust God in time of human suffering, wouldn't he have said something to Job? Well, look how he answers Job. I like this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the world and said, Who is this that darkens counsel? By words without knowledge. Who is this that doesn't know what he's talking about? Gird up your loins like a man now. Does that sound like a sympathetic approach? Job has said some pretty harsh things that God has done him wrong in his thinking. It hasn't been fair. So he said, oh no, you gird up your loins for a man. I will demand of you an answer and you will answer me. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Now you see that little blank spot, that blank spot at the end of that verse? That's Job's answer. Right there, that's his answer. There's nothing there, right? That's his answer. Now, if, and when you go through this, you're going to find that there's nothing said. But when you get to the 40th chapter, look what it says in the um, 40th chapter. Where's the verse? I have it written down. Uh, oh, 40th chapter. Oh, there it is, verse 8. Excuse me. Job 40, verse 8. Now, look at this statement. 
If this were about suffering, would God be, have been saying this to him? Look what God says to Job. Will you disannul, or actually in modern English, will you annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? Ooh, ooh. This is not about suffering. This has more to do with God. Now, what does it have to do with God? Well, now you can see that, it, that, that this is not because he, he doesn't answer Job. But what is it about? If you go back to the first chapter, and it, it's born out twice, but for the sake of time, we just look at Job chapter 1, and you can see, what is this really about? What is the book of Job about? It's here. And it's the most interesting way to start off the Bible. It is fascinating that this would be in the first book of the Bible. It's fascinating that the first book of the Bible is about this subject because I would have never guessed that would be the case. I don't think anybody would have. Now, let's begin reading. And beginning at verse 6, Job chapter 1. There was a day when the sons of, uh, sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, to present themselves, by the way, it's to stand in order. They had, a, they had ranks. These were organized. The angels are organized in ranks. They have a spot that they stand on before the throne. Now, that's fascinating. You wouldn't know that without this. And it says, and Satan came also among them. Now, Satan still has access to the third heaven. And the Lord God said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down in it. I would say you should get 1 Peter 5. That it says we're in 1 Peter 5, around verse 8, where it says, Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may overwhelm, devour. That's what he's, when he says he's going up and down, that's what he's doing. 1 Peter 5 tells you that, where it says Satan goes about like a roaring lion. That's what he's doing. And so now, who, who starts the whole idea of maybe, of maybe Job getting tempted? Look who does this. Now, this is really, really, really interesting. God's going to bait this one. And because his Satan's going to fail, he's going to look like a fool. But God baits him. It says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my, my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that fears God and avoids evil? Now, look what Satan says. Then answered, Then Satan answered, the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him, about all his house, about all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his substance has increased in his hand. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will bless you. He will bless you to your face. Do you hear the seething contempt in that? If you don't, read it again. You can't avoid the fact this is pure and unadulterated contempt. And if you could hear it audibleized, in a voice, you might hear it sounding like I said. It might not even be as nice as the way I said it. Now, so what is the issue here? What is, what is, Job, what is Satan challenging God over? You've made a hedge. You're buying him off. You're paying him to be your worshiper. He worships you because you pay him. So what do you suppose the test is in this book then? Take away what he has? Because that's what Satan's going to do. He's going to start off by taking away all of his benefits, including his children. And then the second round, he's going to take away the man's health. And the thought being, if he can take away what this man has, this man is only in it for the money. He's only in it for the benefits. He's only worshiping God because God's paying him to do it. And so when you take the blessings away, he's not going to worship you. He's a fair-weather Christian. Well, not a Christian, but you know the terminology. That's what this book is about. Now, I realize it's dominated by physical suffering. The physical suffering causes the exchanges between these men. And 
that forms an important part of the book, but what you don't see and most commentaries don't seem to take into account is the most important part is in one, the chapter 1 and chapter 2 where Satan comes in and he challenges God. And the fact is, you know, when Satan says, does, does Job fear God for naught? You know what that tells me when verse 9 and 10? It tells me he's looked at Job and he's determined, I can't touch this man because God's paying him off. That's from Satan's point of view. He's considered this man because he knows all about him. He says, you build a hedge around him. Now, how would he know that if he didn't go looking at him? How would you know that if he didn't size him up? This is 1 Peter 5, about verse 8, where it says, Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's what it says when Satan says, I'm going up to and fro, up and down on the earth. He's looking for victims. Why is he here in heaven? Because Satan cannot tempt anyone that's a believer unless he gets permission. Now, we know that in the New Testament. But now you see it back here because God gives him permission. He notice he doesn't go until God gives him permission because look what he says, verse 12. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only upon him put forth not your hand. So Satan went forth in the presence of the Lord. Satan was there to get permission to tempt somebody. But it wasn't Job. You see, God dangled Job out in front of him. And, and Satan responded, responded by, Yeah, I've already checked this guy out. I can't touch him. You pay him off. And he said, if you, but he says, if you, if you did put your hand forth, he would, he would curse you. He would bust you to your face. So God says, okay, you got a deal. See, so now you see what's happened. Satan has been schnookered. I like that old English word. You know that, that word schnookered? He's been hoodwinked. He pulled, God pulled a fast on, and he gave him a deal that he can't win because God knows this man. And God knows what he can take. And I do believe in the Old Testament. I know you don't have a verse there, but I do believe it's true in the Old Testament, just like it is today, that God never lets anybody be tempted above what they can handle. Now, Job could handle, I've never seen anybody handle what Job handled. He loses everything, and all he does is he, is he said in verse 21, verse 20 and verse 21, it says, Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down on the ground to worship, and said, Naked I came out of my mother's room, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. In all this, Job, sin not, nor charge God foolishly. Now, he, he says, naked I came. Oh, he lost a couple things. Let's see. Well, he lost his wealth, all of his camels, all of his herds. You read all the things he lost. And his children, ten children were murdered. And he said this. I don't know anybody else who could. This man was something else. This, he, if he could handle this much, I don't think I know anybody. I've never known anybody could handle a fraction of this. Now, I want to just say a few more things about this, and you're going to have to read the rest of it. What you might not know about this is this was not done in a classroom. This was not done inside of a house. Look over at Job chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8. I believe you see a clue to something. It says, verse uh, 7, Job chapter 2, So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with, with sore it's, actually, that's a word for evil. It shows you what evil is in the Old Testament, too. It's, it's something lacking in character. With sore boils from the sole of his foot to his crown. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. And that word for ashes means exactly that. It's used all the time of sackcloth and ashes. It's burnt, nasty garbage stuff. You know what this tells me? Job is sitting in a pile of ashes. With broken pottery, he's scraping himself. Where do you suppose he's at? He's at the city dump. 
He's outside at the city dump at a landfill. That's what it looks like to me. Now, you put this man in a landfill, and his friends come up to him. And if you read through this, and, and you can see, I, I summarize in, in the first part of uh, the addendum, I have a section called Such Great Friends, and I summarized in a nutshell, what his three friends said about him. You can read it. We don't have time to go through it. I'd love to go through it in detail, but we can't. But when you look at those things I said and you read them, you know what you come away with the idea? They were not calmly talking to each other. They were yelling at each other. Now, how do I know that? Well, the, the language itself definitely points that out. But I also know the Semitic peoples, what they're like. They don't just talk when they get excited. They yell. They yell. They do. And uh, there, there's some things in, uh, oh, if, if you look at the notes on page 14, for example, Bildad counters that Job is full of hot air because God only punishes wicked. That's, that's over in point number, on page 14, point number 5, Bildad says that Job's full of hot air. And then verse 8, Job replies that his friends, and I put quotation marks on it for their friends, all right, are useless mockers who should leave him alone. He says bluntly to his friends, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. His estimate is nearly the same. But you're forgers of lies, you're all physicians of, of no value. And I love this one. Oh, that you all together would hold your peace and it be your wisdom. Verse 5 is something like saying, oh, that you shut up and you'd be wiser. Now, do you suppose that was said quietly with a smile? These are guys yelling at each other. It was done in public, and I can show you evidence that suggests it was. If you go over to Job chapter 32, you'll see that there was someone else that is introduced in the book that most people don't talk about too much, and I call, him Job, and I, I call this man Job's fourth comforter. He's a lot better than the other two are, or the other three are. So, let's begin reading Job chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Lihu, the son of Barakai, the Buzzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job, his wrath was kindled because he justified himself rather than God. He's right. He's right. He's the first one that's right. The three friends didn't say that. He's right because remember what God said? Will you condemn me that you might be justified? He hit the nail on the head. And also, he, against his three friends, his wrath was kindled because they found no answer. You could say they found no evidence, yet they con condemned Job. Now, as you go on down here, he said uh, in verse 11, verse 10, it says, Therefore I said, Hearken to me, and I will also show you my opinion. Now, notice what he says in verse 11. Behold, I have waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons while you searched them out. Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job or answered his words. How long do you suppose he was there? He, he says, I've listened to your reasons. He was there from the beginning. Why? Because this was done in public, and these were yelling at each other, and this young man happened to come over and start listening in on it from the very beginning because it wouldn't make any sense. He says, I've, I've, I've waited for your words. I gave, he was waiting for them to say something that made a difference. He was there the whole time. And there's one other reason. In the 31st chapter, if you turn back, we're not going to read it, but there are 17 times in the Hebrew text, 17 times that Job says, if I've done this, if I've done that, if I've done this. Now, if Job was saying, if I've done this, and there was nobody there that could say, yes, you have, or no, you haven't, would it make any sense? Would there be any reason to stand up and say uh, to, some, to nobody, you stand up in front of a classroom, an empty classroom, and say, if I've done this, you can run me out of town on the rail, and there's nobody in the classroom. 
Well, that's not doesn't mean anything, does it? What I'm saying is when he says this, this noisy confrontation between these men, one of whom was known for being very wise and brilliant, Job had a high reputation, and his three friends, because they were his friends, had something of a reputation. So you have four prominent men yelling at each other at the city dump. You think it's not going to get a crowd to come? This was a public exchange. And if you miss that, then the 31st chapter loses its value because he says, if I've done this. Now, the only people that could testify whether he had done that or not would be people that knew him, people that lived around him. So what he says here would be pointless if there weren't people that lived near him there that could validate it. They had to be there hearing him say this. So in other words, probably the whole town was out there. It was probably like, hey, this is better than fight night. Let's go out and watch this. I haven't heard a, we haven't heard a good screamer like this in a long time. And us people probably did. They probably uh, argued this way all the time as, as a people. But so when you look at that, it tells me, now when you get Job, now think of it. These men are talking and there's a whole crowd around these men when they're saying all these horrible things about Job. And all those people are hearing it. I wonder how it affected them. Because when Job says these, seven, these 17 things, I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. Elihu waits. He waited. Now, why did he wait? Because Job said these things and he wanted to see, was anybody going to contradict him? Because he said, Elihu said, I'm younger than all you guys. He was waiting to hear something. He didn't hear anything. Then he starts to speak after nobody says anything. And his friends say nothing more. The people that were there say nothing. And now he goes into it. So the, the bottom line is, when you read this book, keep in mind that this would have been, oh, this would have been just a, a, an uproar. It would have been so much fun to hear this. It was done in public. It was done in public. Now, and before we leave the subject, on top of 15, there's an interesting statement that... Uh, that Elihu is going to make. Elihu has the longest discourse, uh, and he, he accuses Job of claiming to be more righteous than God. He actually does. Because you look in the top of page 15, we printed out the verse, Job 35.2 says, Do you think this to be right, that you said my righteousness is more than God's? Yeah, yeah he, he did accuse him of doing that. And apparently, that's what he saw Job is doing. And when you look at it, you kind of get the feeling that Job is holding himself up and saying that he's right because God should have done this. So in other words, if he can tell God what to do, and he did, he attempted to, he said this is what God should have done, then he thinks he's more righteous than God is. Now, I don't think Job realized he was doing it, but he was doing it by what he was saying. It was still the same thing. You don't have to know that you're saying it. The fact is you did it, it makes you guilty of that thing. So, and you notice I put it on page 15, there's that verse again, as in my notes. To understand the focus of the book of Job, it's, to understand that God is the focus of the book of Job is summarized best in, in Job 40, verse 8. Will you disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? And so God, when God goes through this thing, uh, when he, when from, Job, from Job 38 through verse 40, the early part of verse 40, chapter 42, God challenged him saying, were you there when I did this? Do you know about this? Do you know about that? Do you know about this? Do you know about that? If you're more righteous than God, if you're on his footing, then you should know about these things. And that doesn't sound like he was explaining to Job why Job suffered. Now, my last thoughts on this, and I, I, I hate to leave it, but I'm going to have to leave this book because we don't have time, uh, is I believe the author of this book was Elihu. 
And the reason I would say that is because he is the only person who has his genealogy given. And the history of, of literature at this time is that the author would introduce himself and give his pedigree and so forth. And the only person in the book that does is Elihu. And he was young and he outlived Job, so he could have written those things about how Job's life ended because Job's life ends at the end of the book. And I don't know if Job wrote about his death unless he wrote about it beforehand. I think Elihu wrote the book. So that's just an interesting thought. If you look at it, uh, it fits in. And oddly enough, I found some commentaries that agree with me that he was a possible author of it because it would be difficult for Job to have written some of these things about himself. Well, we're going to move on to the book of Psalms. If you can believe that, we're going to let Job go. Now, I do have a handout. If you want to know something about the theme of the Psalms, in, in, in handout number 9, addendum number 9, you can see the classification of what the Psalms are like. This is suggested. I wouldn't guarantee it's 100% right, but it does give you a working basis. You can see the types of Psalms there were. You have suggestions back here on the back page of what they were like. Now, we can't go through them all, but there's one thing I was thinking about when Pastor was speaking. It struck me, and when Pastor said it, it just jumped off the page. He said that the Old Testament believer couldn't be led by the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth. And when you go through the Psalms, there's a, there's a statement that you'll hear a number of times. Teach me, O Lord. Lead me, O Lord. Why is the psalmist asking for teaching and leading? Because it doesn't happen. Because he doesn't have it. He's asking for something he doesn't have. He wouldn't be asking for it if he had it. If he could get it, he would have had it. You even see that in David. Now, the Psalms, uh, although, you know, the, interestingly enough, the Psalms were not written in or not recorded in chronological order. I can guarantee you that. I can prove that very simply because Psalm 90 is identified as a Psalm of Moses and Moses predates all these people. So the book of Psalms was arranged by men and I believe God had his hand in it because when you look at it, I think that you'll see the theme for the whole book of Psalms in the first Psalm. If you look at it, it's going to tell you something. Look at Psalm 1 for just a moment. I think you have the, the theme for the book of Psalms given to you in the first psalm. And if I'm correct, then the second psalm also becomes important because it talks about God's plan to have, have the Messiah rule is not going to be thwarted by what men do. Somewhat interesting. That would be the second psalm, isn't it? Must have been important to God to say that. And that's sort of tongue-in-cheek I'm saying. It. But if you look at Psalm 1, Here's a th and you look at this and ask yourself, is this not the theme of the book? I think you can't miss it. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. Now please remember, we're not talking about the Bible. We're talking about somebody that wrote, you'll notice this is one of the anonymous Psalms, by the way. I don't know who to give credit to this. But you'll notice that it says his delight is in the law of the Lord. Be literal with the word. The Old Testament, this is telling what the Old Testament believer would do. You want to be happy? Here's how you do it. You want to get the most out of your life? Here's how you do it. His delight shall be in the law of the Lord. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit and his seasons. His leaves shall not wither. And whatever he does shall, not, shall prosper. Shall prosper. Now, it's not talking about spiritual prosperity what kind of prosperity would you think that they would be interested in back here? Pastor's smiling. He knows. Shekels. Money. Produce. Children. Lands. Yes. It says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which are driven away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. 
There's your thing for the whole, that's the same for the book of Psalms. This is what you have to do to get what God wants to give the Jew, to get the best for the Jewish life. A believer, this would be for a saved Jew. What should they do? You see in verse 1 what they do. They don't, they don't hang around with the ungodly. In verse 2, they pay attention to the, to the written word of God at that time, the law. The Pentateuch was written. The first five books of the Bible were there. They were the next things written after the book of Job. They had them in the time of David. They were available. And this is how, so that's what this whole book is about. Now, there is one other psalm that I, I, I like, the 119th Psalm. And uh, I came up with a, with a theory about this, and it turned out someone else shared it with me, which made me feel good. It's always nice when you study the Bible and come up with an idea, and somebody that's supposedly a scholar agrees with you. It makes you feel like you're a scholar. You know, once in a while, I need a little help like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's nice. Now, when you come to the 119th Psalm, uh, it's in, in some of your Bibles, you can learn the Hebrew alphabet in there because you have, you have the sections. You have Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth. Those are letters of the Hebrew alphabet and in order. So there's 22 lessons. Each one is eight verses long. I'll tell you what I believe, and, I, and at least one or two other scholars agree with me, but that's not the reason I believe it. I believe it because it, it would fit in the context of things. When Ezra came back, we saw in the book of Ezra, after 70 years, the people had been dispersed and they had been in Babylon. They didn't have any synagogues that we know of. They weren't taught the law. So when they came back to the land, how much knowledge do you think those people had about the law? About that much. And a lot of them didn't have much because when they were alive, they didn't listen anyway. So I believe Ezra wrote this, 22 lessons, 8 verses, 22 concise lessons to teach people how to relate to the Word of God, the law. That's what this is about. I believe the 119th Psalm is a series, it's a primer, it's a series of lessons that were written by Ezra to teach the people this is how you relate to God. This is how you relate to His Word, the law, the importance of God's Word. Because when you go through this verse, do you know there's only about three verses in this 176-verse psalm? There's only three, three verses that don't have some reference to some part of the law. There's only three times, I think, 90 and the 90th verse, 122nd, and there's one other, I think. There's only three verses that don't have some part of the law. So it's pretty important. Now, in the psalms themselves... You have 73 psalms, and this is on, our, on page 15. You have 73 psalms by David, and I give you the, all the psalms. And you have 12 psalms by Asaph. Now, of those psalms, if you want to get the most doctrinal psalms, the ones that seem to have the most theological information that would be interesting to know, Asaph writes the best psalms for that. David's psalms tend to be more about he's in trouble. It seems like he's always in trouble and asking God for help. I think a guy should learn how to stay out of trouble himself. But seriously, but, you see, but when you get to Asaph, Asaph is usually not so much connected with it himself. In fact, he writes the 73rd Psalm, which is the one about, about his concern about the wicked, and then he realized the latter end. 73rd Psalm is a good psalm to know. It even makes sense today in the background. You say, yeah, it was true back then. It's kind of the same thing today. The, the, old, the unrighteous are going to get it eventually. And then you have the, the sons of Korah wrote 10. Now, if you want to see anything about present tense Old Testament salvation in the Psalms, you'll find it throughout the Psalms, but you'll find more of it in these 10 Psalms. You will find more things about the, about the righteousness of God, about the love that these individuals and their, 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 
rejoicing or their feeling that they had for God, their human emotions of positive joy and happiness that they directed toward God, it shows you something about the best an Old Testament believer could have in their present tense of salvation. Now, we don't have much written. There's nothing written concisely to say, this is present tense salvation, here's how you live, and it's just not there. You have to hunt for it and find it. But there's a lot of it there. Now, you have two Psalms by Moses or by Solomon, and, of course, Moses wrote Psalm number 90. Ethan wrote Psalm 89. Heman wrote Psalm 88. And now, notice point number eight. There are 50 Psalms that have unnamed authors. Now, the text of the Bible, when you see in, in a bold font at the beginning, it'll say, a Psalm of David. That's actually part of the text of the Bible. That is actually written in the Bible itself. And that tells you who wrote it. And so you have that. But you have 50 Psalms. And look at them. There's a list of them. And there's some really, some of your most interesting Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2. We don't know who wrote them. Some of the most interesting Psalms in there are absolutely anonymous. I don't know, I'm not sure why. Now also the Psalms are arranged in what they call five books. You have Psalm 40. Oh, Psalm 1 through 41 is book 1. Book 2 is 42 through 72. Book 3 is 73 through 89. Book 4 is 90 through 106. And Psalm five, or book 5 is Psalm 107 through 150. So you'll find there's just repeated themes in here. And I put down in the bottom of the page, and, and this really will give you an idea what the Psalms are like. One writer suggests that there are five recurring themes in the Psalms, and I think this is pretty accurate. Petition. Thanksgiving, praise, instruction, and profession of trust. And there are five minor themes recurring, which I don't know that I'd say they're minor. Repentance, it doesn't seem that's so minor. Remembrance and retribution, I would say that's not minor when David psalms because he's frequently looking for retribution on those that are after him. But I think it gives you an idea. Now, uh, there also are quite a few psalms that are millennial. Now, uh, you can go to this, I have Wiki has 92 psalms that are supposedly fulfilled in the life of Christ in his ministry. Uh, 92 prophecies out of the psalms. I can't say that that's true. Uh, There may be some exaggerations, but it is really worth further review. Top of page 16. There are messianic psalms that we know for sure, and these are ones that I know for sure that are messianic, and there may be more. But you have the Messianic Psalm 2, that starts off and that tells you right up front. The second psalm, it's important because after we find out what the first psalm is about, the first psalm is the theme of the book, what's the first thing that's said after the theme? Messiah is going to rule and they're not going to get around it. Boy, talk about something interesting. I wonder why that's so, so early. Because God means business. When, when we talk about Christ establishing the Millennial Kingdom, He is going to do it and He's going to take it by force. We know that. That's the second advent. There's going to be some bloodshed there, quite a bit. So, you have your Messianic Psalms 2, 8, 16, 22, 45, 72, 89, 110, 118, and 132. And there may be some others. I'm not 100% sure that it's. There are some places where you could go either way on some of them. Now, there's an important statement here. No matter how Christians categorize the Psalms, it is important to remember that the Psalms were written to Israel, not to the church. They must not be allegorized and misapplied to the believer. To try and use the Psalms for the Christian will destroy some of the best insight we have into how the saved Jews live under the law. Now, you might not have thought of that, 
It's not that you're just not just that you're destroying New Testament salvation. You are taking away and destroying what little information we can find about present tense Old Testament salvation. If you allegorize a psalm, you're pulling it right out, and would would know absolutely nothing about it. These were people who sought to know God's ways because the law of Moses gave no divine enablement to keep it. You notice that? These were people who sought to know God's ways because the law of Moses gave no divine enablement. Pastor's been talking about that, and here it is again. There's no divine enablement in the Old Testament. So when you had to keep the Psalms, why do you think David said in Psalm 51, create in me a, a clean heart? Create. It's the word that you have in Genesis 1.1. Create out of nothing. David knew he had nothing there. God had to do something, and he, so he's begging for that to be done. But he had no assurance of it. There's no, he, he had no way of, all he could do was just, he just wanted, he had no divine enablement. He couldn't do anything about what he had done. So, and then of course you have Psalm uh, 119, I mentioned in there again. And uh, Psalm 51, that prayer of repentance shows you a lot. That Psalm 51, actually, when I was doing the study, when I finally broke, broke through the ice and found what I began to understand about present tense Old Testament salvation. Most people haven't seen it, but when I saw in the 51st Psalm, when, G, when, when David said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. There it was. That was it. There was something there about his present tense, and you began to see what he had. And it's there. So Psalm 51 becomes very, very interesting. And I put the last statement in that paragraph. Few places in the written word of God can we find a more heartful and desperate prayer than Psalm 51. Believe me, Psalm 51 in the Hebrew text, it's a desperate, 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 desperate man. It really is. I could say more about it. We want to hurriedly say a few things about the book of Proverbs. Now, the book of Proverbs is, is the most difficult book of the Bible to outline. It is divided into four sections, chapters 1 through 9, chapters 10 through 24, Solomon recorded Proverbs of his choice. Now, we know that Solomon spoke, you notice I have a footnote, Solomon only chose some of his Proverbs because it said he spoke 3,000, but the book only contains about 800. So he chose, David, Solomon chose the ones he liked out of the whole book. Now, so chapters 25 through 29, the men of Hezekiah copied out some of, his, some of Solomon's Proverbs, and there's some duplication because they picked ones they liked, and some of them were ones that Solomon also liked. So there's there some of the Psalms, that, or some of the Proverbs that are recorded twice. Now, the, the last two chapters are written by two unknown men, Agur and Lemuel. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on that, but I don't believe that one of them was Solomon. I believe these were two Gentiles that knew Jehovah God, and they worshipped him. In fact, one of them even said, Who's, what is the name, name of God's son? Did you know that? It's amazing. It's there. You read it in Psalm 31. Uh, it's, it's in Psalm 30 or 31. Uh, so Proverbs, Proverbs is, is short, pithy statements of common sense for Jews living under the Mosaic law. And the theme for the book is back in Psalm, uh, Proverbs, I keep saying Psalms. Proverbs contain short, pithy sayings for common sense for Jews living under the Mosaic law. The theme is set in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, you might want to write something there. You might want to write, it's not in your notes, but write Job 28, 28 there. Because you know who said it first? I think Job, I think, uh, I think that Solomon borrowed it off of Job. I think he did because of what he says. And this, this is fascinating because apparently 
he knew, he knew something about the book because Job 28, 28 says this. This is Job speaking. And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Oh, that's about uh, maybe 12, 1300 years before Solomon, something like that. Where do you think Solomon got it from? Solomon, if you find out in, in Ecclesiastes, he does say that he sought out wisdom and he recorded it. He didn't write everything as original material. He found what he liked and some of it he edited and some of it he didn't. And here is one he edited because he says his theme is this. He got that, I believe he got that from Job because Job was written first. And you see the commonality? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Depart from evil is understanding. Ah, sounds familiar. So, Although the Proverbs are generally applied to church, uh, it ignores the need for little interpretation. The guideline for, for applying Proverbs is to recognize it was written under the law of Moses to the people of Israel, not to the church. Therefore, any maxim about how a believer relates to God is for Israel under the law and cannot be used for the church. And it's in bold font. Now, you'll notice, for example, that a much-used Proverbs uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. People like this. I learned this when I memorized this early. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Now, taken out of context, this sounds really good, doesn't it? Who's going to argue with that? Ah, there's this little nasty thing called context. But kept in context, it is not. Solomon gives a reason to trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3, 10. So shall your barns be filled with plenty, and your presses shall burst out with new wine. Bold font. The New Testament believer living under grace has no such promises. Please, when you take this, you look at the book of Proverbs, take it literally. Oh, there are some things that are still true today when it talks about how humans act toward each other. That hasn't changed. Unsaved people act the same way. You can count on that. If it talks about the character of God, God's character hasn't changed. But if it talks about how men relate to God, and men and women both, that has changed. We're under grace. This is law. So be very, very careful. The Proverbs should be taken with the utmost care and be taken literally. Now, you notice on the bottom of the page I have listed there, there are some good advice in them. You can see some Psalms, uh, Proverbs I gave at the bottom of the page, but I don't recommend that you do too much with it. Now, the, the, now the problem, and this is on page 17, and we're going we're, we're gonna to be finished in a moment here. The, proverb, the problem in outlining Proverbs is that there are as many as 25 repeating themes which occur randomly throughout the book. And uh, there's a book I, I footnoted. If you can find it, there's a little book that was written, Wisdom for Today's Issues, and it tries to categorize and list some of the Psalms. It's a, not a real long book, and it's not all-inclusive, but it gives you a number of them. It's, if you can find it, I don't even know if it's still in print. I have a copy of it. I don't even know where I got it from. But... Uh, and so those who want an outline, you can see if you, if you get the book, Lisa and Archer's book, the Survey of Old Testament Introduction, on pages 449 through 451, he actually does give you something of an outline. I know Pastor Dave outlined this, and he said that he literally pulled his hair out. Maybe that's why he's bald. I don't know. He, but he, but he, he did provide an outline for this book, and it's virtually impossible because it's not made to be outlined. It's just pithy statements that are there. It's just like a potpourri. You look at this one, oh, this one, this one, this one. That's what it's for. So it's not, it's, not for some, it's not for us today. And this really shows you, when you read this book and take it literally, it stands out like a sore thumb. You don't have to be told it's not for today. When you take it literally, it's so obvious. 
That's the, that's the nature of this book. So I see, I see once again, I've been talking about in Sunday school and, and my class schedule, that there are problems that we avoid when we take the Bible literally. This class is a perfect illustration of it. We avoid all the confusion, all the problems with Proverbs. Well, you know, my, I don't have a barn to be full of, of grain, and I, don't have, and I really don't want my presses to be <laughs> turning out wine because I don't drink, and I don't want to have the problems of it. No, none of those things. If we just take this book literally, there's so much that we will avoid. But now there's so much knowledge here. You know, in, just in closing, I'll go back to my favorite book. You would not know, there's a lot of things you would not know without the book of Job. We said one of them. The big one is you would not have ever seen God and Satan talking face to face. I would not. Without that, I would never have believed that Satan would have the gall to be that blunt and that sarcastic right in the face of God. I would have never thought that. I would have thought he had better sense. And he doesn't have very, very good sense in my book. And there are other things you would know too. One of the things is there's this old myth, and, I, and with this we're going to stop. There's an old myth about the human race, which is what really got me started about the book of Job. It was how, how the idea of ancient man was a knuckle-scraping Neanderthal, and he didn't know much. He's dragging his knuckles along in the dirt, and he's stupid. That's what they said ancient man was like. First thing I thought of when I was encountered that, and somebody asked me about that in church one time. They, they was pouring gasoline on a fire. Just, I went to the book of Job, and I said, that's not true. Look at these people. And when you go through the book of Job, and you see in the 29th chapter when he talks about the legal system, they had a sophisticated system for their time. This was not, a, this was not an ignorant man. You listen to these people arguing back and forth. They were flowery, eloquent men, speaking a highly emotional language. It's extremely entertaining. But it also shows you that these were pretty smart people. They weren't knuckle-scraping Neanderthals or people that hang out at Walmart. <laughs> I don't know why Walmart gets such a bad name, but they, uh, they always have that. So I hope that tonight that we can see again that you have a treasure back here. There's wonderful things that you can learn about how they were supposed to live. You want to know how the Jews are supposed to live? Don't try to allegorize the Gospels. Just go back and read through Proverbs and see the good advice. Go back and read through Psalms and see what God said that they should do if they want his blessing. It's there. Why do we have to allegorize? I don't understand. I don't understand. Maybe it's because I'm just a simple man, and I like simple things, like the truth. I like the truth, and you don't get the truth by playing games with what God said. You get the truth by taking God at his word. Because when you don't, you're putting words in God's mouth. And that's when, that, when you allegorize. Think of it that way. Why do I dislike it so much? Because you're putting words in God's mouth that he didn't say. If you're saying Israel is the church, you're saying you're making God to be a liar. You're making him to say something he never said. So don't put words in God's mouth. When you allegorize, that's what you do. Don't let anybody tell you that. If anybody says, well, it doesn't really mean what he says, that's when you stop listening to them. Whether it's in the radio, whether it's from a pulpit. I'd even get up and walk out of church. I have done that before when someone got up and said something that was terrible about the word of God. I left. Whether anybody saw me or not, I don't know. I wasn't concerned. It was the fact that they were insulting my God. They were distorting what he said. They were making him to be a liar. Don't allegorize. You can take it literally. Everything you want to know about the Old Testament, it's there. Now, I guess we should take time for questions. We're just a little bit over, so uh, I, I apologize for being over last week so much. I, I don't know that that was the best thing to do, but I just wanted to get through the information. And we managed to shorten it up a little bit. And so there's a lot. But look in your addendum on Job and, and you won't be so disappointed because there's a lot of good information in it. It'll show you what they said. It'll summarize it. will give you the gist of what his friends said to him.
And after you read it, you'll begin to wonder why were they his friends in the first place. They were not very nice to him.